Hello, and welcome back to Wisconsin Law in Action, a podcast where we discuss new and forthcoming scholarship with University of Wisconsin Law School professors. I'm your host, Chris Turner, and my guest today is William Voss Basket, Professor of Law, Anuj Desai. Professor Desai teaches classes at both the law school and the iSchool here at UW-Madison on cyber law, First Amendment rights, intellectual freedom, statutory interpretation, legislation, regulation, and copyright. Today, we'll focus on statutory interpretation and textualism as Professor Desai discusses his newest article, Text is Not Enough, published in the Colorado Law Review. The article examines how judges employ textualism and when they use other forms of legal argumentation to interpret statutes all through the lens of the 2020 Title VII case, Bostock v. Clayton County. Thank you for joining the podcast today, Professor Desai. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm really thrilled to be here. Sure, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for joining. Let's start our discussion by first learning a little more about your background. What is your professional experience and what led you to researching and teaching statutory interpretation? Yeah, well, um, it, it's, I don't wanna say it's a long story. It is a long story at this point. Um, uh, uh, and I will try, try my best to abbreviate it. Um, but uh, uh, the short of it is, you know, as you pointed out in the intro, I also teach at what we call here the iSchool. So I also teach in areas related to new communication technology. And that was the practice area I was in before coming into uh, the legal academy. And in that area, uh, there is, as you might expect, a lot of new technology. And so there are a lot of circumstances in which you have a pre-existing law that doesn't quite fit. Um, and it doesn't quite fit, not because um, you know somebody messed up, but because the world changes and we have new technology and, uh, and that new technology isn't quite like what they thought of before when the legislature passed some previous law. And so I've always had an interest in thinking about difficult questions in statutory interpretation because the ones I faced in practice um, were in that category of, mm, it doesn't just, it just isn't quite uh, uh, as obvious as, um, as one, might, um, might, one might have wanted in the abstract from a statute. And, uh, and so, um, although I did not, teach statutory interpretation or the legislation and regulation class, um, you know, for the first 10 years I was teaching here, uh, I was always interested in it. And so, um, uh, so I, you know, decided that I would, I would, I would, I would pick it up and, um, and I'm really glad I did. Uh, I also, you know, just to, uh, you know, throw one more point out there. I'm, convinced it's indispensable for lawyers in practice. And so uh, um, that's another reason I like to continue teaching it, um, even if it isn't, you know, sort of directly in my, uh, my substantive area. Right. And it seems to be becoming something that's more important as textualism, as you go through in this article, becomes more and more prevalent in argument and opinions that Supreme Courts and other courts release. But we'll go through those in a minute here. But it's sure, pretty, yeah. I agree that the statutory interpretation class is just so important for students to understand how interpretation itself is interpreted. It's not just on the page. It's elsewhere as well. Yeah, absolutely. 
Right. No, I often say, you know, to, to my students, and I think, uh, you know, everybody kind of understands this once they think about it. Um, part of the what statutory interpretation is about is about taking words that are written down somewhere and making them real. Right. So it is, you know, this is our podcast, you know, it's law in action. It really is, um, you know, bringing to life to the real world uh words and how uh interpreters go about doing that um you know i i focus you know certainly in this case in this um article and in a lot of what i do is on judges but judges are by no means the only ones who do that kind of uh that kind of interpretation Oh, not at all. And so I hope that the readers of this article and the listeners of this podcast will be able to apply some of these arguments in their own cases and understand how it's used against them or for them. So let's start digging into this article and about the actual meat of it. To begin, can you tell me what a textualist is when it comes to statutory interpretation and case law? Sure. Yeah. And I may uh, step back a little bit, but let me just start uh, with what you know might be definitional in some sense. So textualism is an approach to interpreting statutes that focuses on what one could call the semantic meaning of the text, the linguistics um, that tells the interpreter to you know, really think primarily. And indeed, if possible, I think uh, some textualists would want entirely about what we refer to as the plain meaning of the words of the statute. And, and, and then to apply that meaning to the fact scenario of any particular case. Um, but if you don't mind, I, just let me step back a little bit though, and just talk a, a little bit more broadly about kind of what are traditionally viewed as different approaches to statutory interpretation, you know, just to sort of fit where textualism um, uh, is, is situated. So I, I would say, you know, sort of two other ways of thinking about statutory interpretation that date back centuries really are what are known as intentionalism and purposivism. And both intentionalism and purposivism you know, take as their principal goal, the furthering of the will of the enacting legislature, right? So the idea is, you know, there's a, there's a legislating body and uh, we have to figure out, right? What it is that the enacting legislature wants. And so these ideas are premised on the notion that the point of interpretation, uh, particularly for judges, is to serve as a what they call a faithful agent of the enacting legislature. And you know the difference between these two, intentionalism and purposivism, is really at the level of generality at which the interpreter is supposed to determine the legislature's will. So. Intentionalism is generally attentive to the legislature's kind of really specific intent with respect to particular language, whereas purposivism, you know, focuses on the legislature's broader purposes. Um, and, you know, this stuff goes back, I mean, you know, in the common law, you know, to the early statutes in England back in the 16th century. Um, but for present day purposes, one thing that I think is really important is that, um, Purposivism in particular became an ascendant approach to interpretation during the second half of the 20th century. And in particular, 
what is known as the legal process school of thought. Um, under, under that um, school of thought, purposivism was premised on this underlying notion that courts should interpret statutes you know, so as to, quote, carry out the purpose as best they can, unquote, right? And this is, this is actually quite important, but as best they can, right? Um, and uh, importantly, the sort of most famous kind of expositors of this legal process theory basically took legislatures as reasonable and so said, part of the point is to assume unless the contrary unmistakably appears that the legislature was made up of reasonable persons pursuing reasonable purposes reasonably, right? And, and you know, by the 1980s, many people believed, and this is most prominently the late Justice Scalia, that purposivism and intentionalism were basically proxies for judges doing whatever the heck they wanted. And I'm exaggerating slightly, but, you know, you get the idea that, once you start talking about purposes of statutes at a certain level of generality, um, you can you 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 have a lot of leeway, a lot of breathing room, so to speak, right? And so, you know, Justice Scalia thought this gives too much discretion to judges, and so the better approach and one that would constrain judges, you know, more, he thought, was to just reject any attempt to determine purpose and then look specifically just at the words and apply those words, right? Um, and, um, and so this, this basic idea um, was, you know, motivated in part by a fear of, you know, judicial, too much judicial discretion, but also this idea, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, this idea that people who are subject to the law should be able to pick up the law book, namely the statute, and read it and figure out how to adjust their behavior according to what they read. And so if that's true, then one could imagine that taking this sort of plain language, plain meaning approach would be you know, a really good way to make sure that people who are um, subject to the law can figure out how to adjust their behavior to it, right? Um, and, you know, Justice Scalia had, he was very famous for, he had lots of, you know, really clever quips, but the one, you know, in this idea, which, you know, which we refer to broadly as the kind of fair notice of the law, right? The basic principle of fair notice. Um, he often referred to Caligula, uh, the Roman emperor, um, who apparently, I don't know whether this is true, it could be all apocryphal, but who was said to have written the laws in very, very small characters and hanging them up on high pillars, you know, so as better to ensnare the public. So the law is way up there on the high pillar. Uh, and if you can't get up there to read them, you know, too bad for you. Um, uh, but I can just tell you that you just violated something kind of thing, right? You know, and so that's, that's really a, you know, sort of paradigmatic example of the fear that, uh, that a lack of notice about law would, um, would further. Right, to even have it written down in a statutory book that you have in front of you, but you can't comprehend what it means would be 
not as harsh as hanging it up on a high pillar, but uh, in the, all in the same vein. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things, Chris, that he, that Justice Scalia um, was really opposed to was using um, what we call legislative history, but the idea is um, these are kind of documents and evidence about what the legislators thought, right, when they were writing the laws. Um, and he was kind of categorically opposed to that because you know, the, his basic argument was, I don't care what the legislators thought. What I care about is what law they passed. And the law they passed are the words that are in, you know, in the federal system, at least, you know, the statutes at large, uh, you know, have they've been codified in the United States code. And that's all I care about, you know. Um, so that's, you know, that, that was his, his, his sort of basic take. And that has been the, the, the driving force behind textualism, um, um, you know, since Justice Scalia's days, um, you know, sort of mid, mid, mid to late 80s. Uh, let's see how that applies to the case that you discussed in your paper, Bostock v. Clayton County. So what about Bostock v. Clayton County lent itself to textualist arguments, seemingly? Yeah, so uh, so it, it's an incredibly clever argument, and uh, you know more than clever. Um, you know, just a uh, uh, you know sort of a spoiler alert, I guess. Uh, uh, you know, tell me, tell you, it was a winning argument, uh, uh, six to three. Okay, uh, so Bostock um, uh, was a case about. Title VII of the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964, as you mentioned earlier, um, which is sort of conventionally known as the statute that prohibits discrimination in employment, okay? Um, and if you want, I can read you the full text uh, of the relevant provision, but you know, for right now, let's um, focus on the sort of key question. And the key question was whether firing someone because he was gay and there was, uh, um, you know, evidence that Bostock, or I, I should say, this was a motion to dismiss. But Bostock basically argued that he was fired because he was gay. Um, uh, whether or not that constituted a quote discharge because of his sex. Okay, so that's those that those are the words, right? This because of sex because of his his sex now bostock and uh you know as i said and another plaintiff from a companion case named zarda uh were both gay and you know their allegation was that 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 was why they were fired because they were gay and then they said you know the plaintiffs uh said that the plain meaning of the statute required ruling in their favor okay now uh, I, I, I hope, you know, even, even though, you know, and they win, okay? So just, yeah, as I said, you know, spoiler alert, they win six to three. Now, on first blush, uh, I, I hope, you know, you, you know if, if you don't know anything about this game, this should seem a little odd, right? Uh, uh, it, because the language is because of such individuals' sex, not sexual orientation, right? Um, and, uh, so, you know, when somebody's fired because 
they're gay, that seems different, at least at first blush, from being fired because, um, you know, in the case of Bostock and Zarda, because they were, let's say, male, right? But this textual argument, and as I said, is incredibly clever. And here, here's, here's how it goes. So first, remember the language is because of such individual sex. And the court starts by saying the term because of embodies what we refer to as, quote, but for causation, okay, end quote. And I'll give you a little more on that in a second. But the basic idea is, but for the person's sex, the person would not have been fired. So another way to say this in the context of Bostock himself is just to say, but for the fact that Bostock was male, he would not have been fired. Or, and you're gonna see, I'm, I'm saying probably the same thing over and over and over and over again. So bear, bear with me here, but there's the slight variations here, right? Or if Bostock had not been male, he would have been fired. Or, and maybe now you can sort of see kind of where this is going. If Bostock had been female, and here's the important part, and everything else about him had been the same, he would not have been fired. Now, it's that everything else about him had been the same that comes to the fore. So the majority says, if Bostock had been female and had, as he is, been attracted to males, then he would not have been fired, okay? Mm -hmm. And so the idea is the everything else about him would have been the same requires that, you know, however you want to think about it, Bostock's partner or the, the persons to whom Bostock is attracted or uh, whatever category you want to say, that, that that remains the same, right? And then we just take Bostock the male, make Bostock female, and keep that all about him the same, and voila, uh, he would not have been fired, and therefore um, he was fired, quote, because of his sex, end quote. Okay, so that's the argument, and that's the winning argument, I just want to repeat, right? So it is now the case that under federal civil rights law, um, the, um, the prohibition on, you know, discharging and uh, uh, not hiring and treating um, differently in, um, in employment terms and conditions, et cetera, et cetera, because of sex um, applies to, um, to sexual orientation, right? Um, That's a major ruling. It's, it's, it is a major ruling. It is probably the major ruling of this, uh, you know, nearly um, 60 year old statute, right? I mean, it, it's uh, 56, it was 56 years at the time, right? This is the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, I mean, there are a lot of, rulings and we can talk about some of them you know sort of later 
uh, as well. But 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 this really is a major major step. Um, and um, and again, just to recap, the argument is it's the plain meaning, right? And so even though it took 56 years for this case to uh, be decided by the Supreme Court, the theory at least, the statutory interpretation theory is th that's what the words say and therefore those were the words that said it in 1964, right? Um, and so that, you know, and maybe we'll talk about this, you can tell me if you wanna talk about this, but you know, this is where the kind of dissenters, um, you know, take, take issue with um you know with the majority or there's one one place that dissenters take 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 issue with the majority so. sure i think that'll be worthwhile to dig into but first i want to take a slight divergence to talk about sure. any other arguments that were made by bostock beyond the plain meaning argument the textualism argument yeah so bostock made a bunch of other arguments uh bostock zarda and you know there were other cases in lower courts um before before this one um uh, so let me give you a couple um, of the main ones, um, both of which are based on precedent, okay? So both of which depend on um, Title VII jurisprudence up until this time. Um, so the first is what is known as a sex stereotyping argument. And the basic kind of argument goes like this, and it, it depends on a, you know, in, in precedential terms, it depends on a plurality opinion in a case from 1989 called Price Waterhouse. And the basic argument goes like this. If I fire someone or treat them differently, um, not literally, I guess one might say because of their sex, but I treat someone who um, is of one sex, but exhibits um, characteristics that I ordinarily associate with the other sex. Um, if that's the reason I fire them or fail to hire them or treat them differently or something like that, that can count as quote, discharge because of sex, okay? And so the case, the Price Waterhouse case um, involved a woman whom uh, the partners at Price Waterhouse thought was too aggressive, too quote, masculine, um, and there was, or at least there was evidence uh, to this to this effect. Um, and she claimed that was sex discrimination. Um, and you know, the court effectively said, um, if it, it, it's it's okay to have a uh, you know discrimination because of aggressiveness, let's say, okay, right? I mean that that's okay, right? If you want people who are not overly aggressive uh, for certain jobs, that's okay. But what you can't do is say, um, you could be overly aggressive if you're a man, but you can't be overly aggressive if you're a woman because 
because that constitutes a sex stereotype. And therefore, that's a kind of difference that in a way, the way you are treating your male and female employees, and therefore, um, uh, that constitutes um, a, you know, a discharge or a differential treatment because of sex, okay? And so what Bostock and Zarda argued is, we're just like that, right? You are treating us differently because we're attracted to men, but you don't treat women who are attracted to men. Uh, you don't fire women who are attracted to men, right? Or put another way, um, you expect men to be attracted to women and we are um, acting in ways that are counter to that stereotype, the stereotype that men must be attracted to women. And because we are, we are acting contrary to that stereotype, that is the reason you're firing us. And so this is of a piece, so to speak. This is of the same ilk. This is the same kind of discrimination as discrimination because of sex stereotyping. And the one thing that you know you should know, Chris, about, about this argument, and it's a really actually, I think, important point, um, the, for um, more than a decade, um, when these sex stereotyping cases came up, one of the most difficult things courts had to determine was whether or not in circumstances when the employee was gay, whether or not the reason the employee was being fired, let's just say as an example, was because they were gay or because of some other stereotype, right? So if a gay person, quote, acts gay, unquote, right? So if they are acting, let's say a male person is acting in effeminate ways uh, and, uh, and is gay, uh, then you know, the employer might fire the person. Uh, and under this old jurisprudence, um, it was okay to fire them if they were gay, but it was not okay to fire them uh, if they walked around you know, with a lisp or if they walked around um, uh, acting particularly effeminate or you know, any of those other things that would constitute, ordinarily constitute sex stereotyping, right? So that was, that was one argument uh, they made. The other argument, and again, it's, it's a really, really sort of clever argument you'll see. So the argument goes something like this, and it, it, it connects to, um, to the fact that the statute also prohibits um, discharge and differential treatment, quote, because of race, okay? And it goes something like this. Um, it, it, it is, um, it's based on, they call it, they refer to it as the loving argument. And it comes from this famous case from 1967 called Loving versus Virginia, which is not a Title VII case at all, but is an equal protection clause case. And in that case, the Supreme Court of the United States held that a Virginia law that prohibited miscegenation, meaning prohibited uh, blacks from marrying whites and whites from marrying blacks, 
um, that that law was unconstitutional. It violated the Equal Protection Clause because it prohibited uh, people from marrying, in essence, um, uh, uh, someone of the other of, of the other race. Okay. And the way the argument goes here under Title VII is something like this. Um, so if someone who is white marries someone who's black or vice versa, and the employer fires the person because of that marriage, that violates Title VII, okay? That is you know, treating them different because of race, okay? Now, you know, some of this you can sort of see uh, uh, sounds like, you know, some of the earlier argument, but it, it, is, uh, it is one of those things where that sounds pretty obvious uh, uh, on its face, right? I mean, the idea that, uh, you could fire somebody because of whom, whom they, the, the race of the person they marry, right? I mean, it just sounds like that's race discrimination. I mean, clearly that's race discrimination. I mean, people don't, you know, you know, just like, uh, so we, because we think of uh, anti-miscegenation laws as race discrimination. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it's just part and parcel of American history and we understand what they mean. They really are aimed at, um, uh, you know, you know, black inferiority, right, is the argument, right? That it's, that's really what they're about. And we kind of understand that. And so that we've sort of assumed violates Title VII. And so, and, and there are some cases in lower courts about this, uh, but the Supreme Court has never held that under Title VII. And, but, but we have to kind of assume that. And the argument here goes, this is the same thing. And here's why it's the same thing. <laughs> because if you're saying, so for Zarda's case, right, uh, I can marry a woman, but I can't marry a man. I'm basically being treated differently because of the person I married or the person that I am uh, in a relationship with, right? And if you can't treat me differently because of the race of the person with whom I'm in a relationship with, you, you're, you shouldn't be allowed to treat me differently because of the sex I'm in a relationship with. Why? Because the statute has the words race and sex right next to each other. There's no difference as a matter of the way the statute is written be, between race and sex. And so, uh, so if, if treating me differently because of the race of the, of the person I marry violates Title VII, then treating me differently because of the sex of the person I marry or I'm in a relationship with or I'm attracted to or whatever it is, uh, also violates, violates Title VII. Um, and so, um, so this argument, uh, again, sort of relies to a certain extent on precedent. It relies on some lower court Title VII cases, and then on this um, this equal protection clause case, Loving versus Virginia from 1967, uh, um, rather than directly um, relying on the words of the statute. I mean, there's a little bit of the words of the statute in the sense of you know sex and race are right next to each other in the statute, 
Um, but, uh, um, but it's really about um, kind of thinking about precedent. Right. Clever and compelling arguments, but both losing arguments, not at least not the ones that won out on, in the opinions of the Supreme Court. They uh, went with the plain meaning and what the words are saying. So with that, let's get to what these opinions are saying. As you said, it was a six to three. Uh, the majority is written by uh, Justice Gorsuch, correct? Correct. Then, um, dissenting was Alito and Kavanaugh. Yeah. What, so what do these opinions say? They What do they rely on? And do they all sound the same? Justice Gorsuch's majority opinion, um, you know, as I said before, is really quite straightforward. It's almost... Um, uh, as one scholar has put it, algorithmic, right? It's almost uh, really just a uh, syllogism, right? You know, it's sort of, if Bostock had been a woman, uh, he would have not been fired. Therefore, it's because of sex. Therefore, end of story, he wins, end of story, right? I mean, it's really, uh, that's that's really the the, the, the nature of the argumentation, um, and uh, and just to you know clarify, it's not it's not that Justice Gorsuch rejected in any way either of the two other arguments that I just mentioned. He just doesn't mention, right? He does he just doesn't feel the need because uh, he thinks, uh, or at least he says he thinks um, uh, this is really straightforward. I, that's all. I'm, I'm I'm done, right? You know, um, so. So here's the difficulty um, with that argument. And uh, Justice Alito sort of lays it out quite nicely, I think. Um, so Justice Alito in dissent says, um, wait, wait, wait a minute. You haven't kept everything the same when you changed Bostock to a woman. It's true, you kept the sex of his partner or his, you know, the people he's attracted to or his, you know, his, his husband or whatever it is, the same. That's true. But notice what you've also done. You've changed not just his sex, you've also changed his sexual orientation. Okay. So, and, and so you haven't kept everything the same. So the right comparator for Bostock is not a female who is attracted to men, but instead a female who is attracted to women. Because if you change Bostock to a female who is attracted to women, then you are changing the sex, but you are not changing the sexual orientation. So that's how you keep everything the same, okay? Um, and now notice uh, that's not right either, okay? This is my, uh, uh, and, and here's why that's not right, or it's, clear, it's not obviously right, I guess, right? Is that what Justice Alito has done is change the sex of Bostock's partner, right? So, so he is correct that Justice Gorsuch changed more than one thing when changing Bostock's sex. He, Justice Gorsuch, in majority, did change both Bostock's sex and Bostock's sexual orientation. So yes, it's true, he changed more than one thing. Uh, but at the same time, 
uh, Justice Alito, when changing Bostock from a gay man to a gay woman, uh, is changing both Bostock's sex and the sex of Bostock's partner or you know people to whom he's attracted, right? Um, but just as Alito, he so he he it was quite interesting at oral argument. Uh, it, he um, made a he asked a question and got an answer that actually quite helped him. So the question he asked so so Title Seven prohibits not just discharge that is not just firing people or treating them differently on the job, but it actually treats it it actually prohibits treating people differently when hiring as well on the on these bases, sex and race and national origin, religion, that kind of thing, right? Um, and so what Justice Alito did is he hypothesized a situation in which you might have um, uh, uh, someone whose um, name is such that you can't tell the person's sex. Right, Pat or Gene or uh, you know, or Chris, Eddie, or Chris. <laughs> exactly. Right. There, there are a lot of names like that, right? Okay, or you know, he actually hypothesized, uh, you know, kind of farming out the decision, right? So uh, you just didn't even know the person's name at all, or something like that, right? Okay, but you do know that they're gay, right? And he says if that person, if that employer refuses to hire the gay person whose sex the employer does not know, uh, does that violate Title VII? Okay. And uh, so you can see where this is going, right? Because the idea is he doesn't even know the person's, the employer doesn't even know the, the punitive employee's sex. Um, and uh, the lawyer for Bostock, who is uh, one of the world's greatest uh, arguers, I mean, you know, sort of modern day Daniel Webster, in my view, uh, uh, Pam Carlin, who's a, she's a professor at, um, uh, at Stanford, um, said no, but it doesn't matter, she said, because there are no cases like that. Right. I, I mean, all the cases involve real people whom the person know. you know, the, the, the employer knows the person's sex. Um, and so uh, so there are no cases like that. But if there were a case like that, yeah, you're right. That case wouldn't violate Title Seven. OK, um, but Justice Alito and, you know, maybe rightly, I'm not sure, you know, uh, but took that and said, but then, you know, then sexual orientation is not the same as sex. And so discriminating against somebody or firing them or whatever it is because of their sexual orientation uh, is, uh, is not the same. And that's why Justice Alito says, my comparator is better than Justice Gorsuch's comparator. My comparator of the lesbian rather than the straight woman is a better comparator for Bostock because in essence, the employer is saying, I don't care about the person's sex. All I care about is the person's sexual orientation. That's what I care about. Um, and so uh, uh, and so that was, you know, that's the core, you know, we'll call it textual dispute, right? Um, but, uh, but notice, I guess, one thing that I will just, uh, you know, sort of emphasize, and then we can get into, you know, what I wrote about. But um, notice 
that to choose between these two comparators, right? So let's say you're trying to decide like which comparator is the right one. Um, both of them change the sex and something else, right? Again, Justice Gorsuch changes the sex and the sexual orientation and Justice Alito changes the sex and the partner's sex. Both of them change something. Now, but how do I choose between those comparators, right? Um, notice there's nothing in the words of the statute that can tell you which of those comparators is correct, right? You might have an intuition about which comparator is correct. And there might be other reasons why you think one comparator is correct rather than another. But it's not because of a definition of the words because of. It's not because of the definition of the word sex. It's not because of the, you know, the word discharge. It's not because of the word, you know, it's, not, it's none of the words. It's not like Justice Alito is pointing to a different dictionary and saying, this is the right definition. And Justice Gorsuch is saying, no, this is the right definition, right? There's no definitional difference in the words of the statute, right? Right, so that makes it kind of an interesting textualist argument that is not talking about the words on the page in the statute. So if these opinions might be actually using other legal arguments, what were they using in their opinions then? And what did right. you write about to about these opinions? Right, so, so my, uh, you know, the core of my argument is that you can't choose between those two comparator arguments on the basis of the words of the statute. And therefore, at core, what is differentiating the two, the majority from the dissent is not a textual distinction, okay? Um, and I would say at least, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> um, most of what the opinions discuss doesn't tell you that, right? And so it's, a, it's, a, it's another example of the courts, you know, either, you know, partly intentionally, but maybe partly unintentionally or, un, or subconsciously not laying out completely what is making them decide uh, the way they decided. Um, so, uh, you know, as I referred to earlier, I, I do think uh, there are uh, other possible arguments. And one that I talked about, the sex stereotyping argument, is an argument that you could, uh, you know, if you were um, inclined to agree with the plaintiff, uh, that I think um, is a really strong argument. Um, but again, it requires that you accept a bunch of past precedent about Title VII. Um, and so part of, you know, the core of my argument is that implicitly, even Justice Gorsuch, who explicitly says, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not relying on precedent here. I'm just relying on the plain meaning of the words. Um, implicitly, he is relying on that precedent. And in particular, what he's relying on 
are the social changes that have taken place over the last 56 years that shaped all of that precedent, you know, through the, you know, the history of Title VII. Um, and so, and so you can't, you know, in 2022, you can't treat the statute anymore the way you could have in, you know, 19, you know, January 1st, 1965 or something like that, right after, you know, soon after it had been passed. Um, and the reason you can't um, is not articulated by the majority, but is, uh, but has to be, right, implicit in the majority's uh, conclusion because the majority's conclusion can't rely solely on the comparator, right? Right. The plain meaning has seemingly changed a little bit from 1965 to 2020 when this was decided then. Right. That's one way to that's one way to frame it. You could talk about the plain meaning or you could say the meaning is no longer plain. Right. I mean <laughs> the true. meaning right the meaning now has embedded in it um a, a whole history of cases, um, and again, uh, you know, part of what I emphasize is those cases themselves are um, part and parcel of the social change that is happening over this 56 year period, right? It's not, so the sex stereotyping cases, again, you can make the same argument that Justice Alito made in the Bostock case about the sex stereotyping argument, you can say, look, I, I, you know, it's true, I fired that woman because she was too aggressive, but I would also fire a man who's too passive, right? I, all I want is sex conforming uh, employees, right? So I'm not treating any of them differently. I'm just saying, you know, the males have to be male and the females have to be female, right? That's in essence, the same kind of argument that Justice Alito made with respect to being gay. I'm not treating the men and the women differently. I'm, I'm, I'm only saying men have to be attracted to women and women have to be attracted to men. That's not treating them differently. That's actually treating them just the same. It's just, you have to be attracted to the opposite Right, and the same thing with sex stereotyping. Uh, again, I, 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 if I, I want you know the women to conform, and I want the men to conform, right? And I, I, the the one thing I'll just tell you, and I, I'm relatively confident, if somebody made a sex stereotyping argument, you know, on January first, nineteen sixty-five, right after that statute had been passed, it, they would have lost, and they would have lost because. In 1965, uh, 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 you know, it was, you know, largely before, I mean, it was, you know, in the early days, I suppose one, some people could argue, you know, but before the larger feminist revolution that, um, you know, transformed the way we think about um, sex equality, um, you know, both in the context of the, the Equal Protection Clause, right? I mean, Justice Ginsburg, when she was a lawyer for the ACLU, you know, became famous for, you know, bringing case after case after case involving um, differentials, right? Stereo differentials based on between uh, gender, the two genders in, in the law based on stereotypes. 
Um, and so by 1989, the idea that an employer could stereotype their employees, you know, was something that, you know, just seemed much more plausibly, um, you know, treating people differently on the basis of sex. Right. And times have obviously changed. And, that, and, that's and not times something. have obviously changed. Exactly. Well, do you believe that Bostock could be resolved with just textual arguments alone? Would the outcome be different? Right. So, you know, part of my claim is no. Right. I mean, I, uh, so in that sense, one can characterize this, you know, a bunch of different ways. But one way you can characterize this, both sides were being textualist. Right. Um, but it, if, if that's right, and if both sides' arguments are equally good under a textualist approach, then that also tells you that textualism can't decide the case, right? Uh, and that's part. That's that's the core of uh, of of my argument. Right. It essentially came up. The coin came up heads and tails at the same time. That's point. a nice way. To, that's a really nice way to put it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So the court, as we've been discussing, kind of arrived at different conclusions using this textualism. What could this signify for statutory interpretation generally and textualism in particular? Yeah, no, it's a great, great question. Um, so I, I, I'll, I'll just say uh, this is not something that is new to me, um, but um, scholars have uh, for decades. So uh, Anita Krishnakumar at Georgetown, Nina Mendelson at Michigan, our former colleague, our former Wisconsin colleague, Jane Schachter, who's now at Stanford, they've all done empirical work um, about, you know, Supreme Court cases, showing that even the justices who say they're textualists rely just as often as the other justices on other types of arguments, whether arguments based on precedent, arguments based on other statutes, arguments based on kind of what we'd call pragmatic considerations, the kind of implications, the actual conclusions, the results uh, of uh, of the of interpreting the thing one way or the other, um, and so this is you know among scholars this is pretty well known. Um, one of the reasons I wrote my article um, was really to say one of the nice things about this Bostock case is that it is it is it's almost like this paradigmatic example to help us better see what you know, the empiricists have really shown us um, for years, right? That, you know, they're really, you need in these hard cases, right? So this is not, uh, I should back up, you know, this is not every lawyer everywhere, you know, reading every statute. There are lots of circumstances in which the lawyer can open up the statute book exactly as we described, you know, when we started our conversation, uh, read it uh, and know what to do, right? I mean, or know how it applies to a particular circumstance. But, you know, when cases go to the United States Supreme Court, 
usually, you know, there is a circuit, what they call a circuit split, right? There are judges in other part, all parts of the country who are disagreeing about something. Um, and there's a reason for that. And the reason is that the plain meaning of the statute usually can't decide it. Um, and so that's part of, uh, um, you know, my claim that in that sense, Bostock is representative. It's just representative of this very small uh, number of situations in which, um, you know, the text is not enough, right? I mean, that, that, that it, you know, that we need other uh, modes of argumentation and that, um, and that inevitably, even for the textualist judges, it is true that you need to give them a textualist argument, but the textualist argument will not win your case for you. That's the key thing, right? And so for lawyers and law students to take away, um, that, you know, another way to say it is, you know, text is necessary, but not sufficient, right? Um, it, it's, you, you, you definitely need an argument that comes from text, but, um, but, you you can't win one of these kinds of cases, generally speaking, by just saying text, text, text all the time, right? This is the way it is. This is, you know, um, um, and so, so the fact that the plaintiffs had these other arguments, even though they don't show up in the majority's decision, was, in, in my view, necessary. They would not have won otherwise, right? Um, and, um, and they certainly would not have won in 1965. And I think um, um, even though it's the same statute and everybody's saying it's the same plain meaning, right? Uh, um, so that's, I think, the, you know, one of, one of the, key, the key things. That's really interesting, thank you. Where can researchers find more of your work? Uh, so, you know, like a lot of us as scholars, I use SSRN, the Social Science Research Network, ssrn.com. And, um, and so all of my work is there. Um, there are links to it on my, uh, my webpage, uh, which you can get through law.wisc.edu um, and, uh, and or um, I have, a, I have a, a link to through anujdesai.org.org um, is my, uh, my, my, my personal, personal page. They all link to the same place. Wonderful. And of course, we'll link to all those pages and Professor Desai's scholarship on our podcast page as well. Thank you again for joining the podcast today, Professor Desai, for a fascinating art discussion. Yeah, no, thank you, Chris. And uh, thanks to the listeners. I hope, uh, I hope it was helpful. Yes. If anything else, it may be sad that I did not take statutory interpretation in law school. So that, if anything else I have learned, I should go back and audit your class. <laughs> you, got, you got a brief primer already. Okay, great. <laughs> I got a leg up on the rest of the students. That's excellent. Well, we've been discussing Professor Desai's recently published article, Text is Not Enough, published in the Colorado Law Review. Again, you can find the full text of this article on SSRN and linked on our podcast page. Thank you all for listening. For a complete listing of Professor Desai's work, visit the University of Wisconsin Law School repository. Find all these links and all of our previous podcasts at wilawinaction.law .wisc.edu. Stay up to date on Wisconsin Law School scholarship by either subscribing to this podcast by the Apple iTunes Store 
or follow either at Wisconsin Law or at UW Law Profs on Twitter for updates and news on faculty publications. See you next time and happy researching.